Good morning. My name is Lydia. I'm the associate pastor here. It's so good to be with all of you. Uh, We are starting a new series this morning called You Asked For It. And the point of this is to respond to some of the questions and topics that all of you uh, were interested in hearing about. So uh, I'm excited to dive in at the very, very easy, simple, no argument needed question, which is, why should I believe the Bible? Now, this is something that we don't talk a lot about in the evangelical church because, really, we spend our time focusing on what is in the Bible, right? We, we spend our time uh, focusing on the real practical implications of what we read here at Evergreen, which is fantastic. Um, but the assumption that many times we make is that all of you, all of us, all the people walking into church, that we all believe the Bible. And so let's get to the meat. Let's get to the content. Let's get to the practical. But... It doesn't take uh, very many conversations to recognize that that's pretty short-sighted, that many of us are struggling uh, to understand Scripture, to maybe even fully accept and believe it, and certainly plenty of people who are not in churches this morning uh, who think Bible is totally bogus. (laughs) So I'm sure all of you have family, friends, and loved ones uh, that you could have some really incredible conversation with. And my goal is that, my hope is that what we talk about this morning, that you're going to feel equipped, that you're going to feel ready to go into those conversations um, with great knowledge and understanding of why you believe what you believe. It's interesting to me that the world, I think, really does care about and is interested and intrigued by the Bible. Uh, I've seen it many, many times on uh, the cover of a lot of different magazines, web pages, articles. And so I went ahead and looked at Time Magazine, went onto their website to see how many times has this topic been on the front cover of Time Magazine, and I literally couldn't count how many. Almost every year it comes up, is the Bible true? What is the Bible? Is it fact or fiction? Did Jesus really live? I mean, there's so many questions that people have, and they're buying it, and they're reading it, and they're trying to understand. But I want to acknowledge this morning that people spend their entire lives dedicated and committed to this subject and topic, teaching it, and I'm going to do my best to tackle it in 35 minutes. So with that being said, this is not all-encompassing. We could do an entire series on it. In fact, I've had several people come up to me and say, yes, do a whole series on this. Uh, There's plenty more that could be said. And because of that, there is a list of further reading and resources on the backside of your handout. And if you want even more, I did have people come up to me after the last couple services with specific questions um, that they wanted more information or resources on. I'm emailing them that. You're welcome to come and find me or Ann or Jared or Brad um, and ask those questions. We're happy to, to go deeper with you. But the other thing that I want to mention is that there's a ton of Bible verses that I could quote this morning about uh, the truth and the perfection, the validity of Scripture. But here's what I found out. See, it's not super helpful to quote Bible verses at people who don't believe the Bible. So I'm going to try to not spend a lot of time quoting Scripture to you because I think most people are looking for the other evidence to believe that the Bible is true, although, of course, there will be some great Scripture sprinkled throughout our time. Um, Many of you are friends uh, with me on Facebook, and you may have seen my Father's Day post in tribute to my husband. This is his first Father's Day, and we have our four-and-a-half-month-old Everett. And Kyle surprised him and and me with uh, his first Bible. 
And it's so sweet. So we have a picture of him reading Everett, his Bible. Um, and you can see that it's got pictures and it's really sweet. And it leaves out all of the gory, weird, and confusing, gross stuff. Uh, so we're really glad that it doesn't, you know, talk about like David looking down on Bathsheba bathing or, you know, baby skulls bashing against rocks. That's all left out of there. So, uh, but why I wanted to show this to you, um, obviously, because I think it's precious, but because we really believe, uh, my husband and I, and I know the rest of the pastors and leaders at Evergreen, that the Bible is true and that it's transformational. And we want to start from the youngest age with our little ones, um, instilling those truths into them. And this is how it's done. It's done at, it's done at home. It's done by you, mom and dad. And you're going to want to be able to answer the questions. I had a, a mom of a teenager come up to me after the last service. He said, my 15-year-old says, thank God, he finally believes in God again. But for a long time, he didn't believe in God. He's been going to church his whole life, and now he has all these other questions. And she's not sure how to answer some of those questions. My goal and my hope is that you're going to learn how to answer some of those questions. Because our kids, whether you believe it or not right now, respect and trust and love you. And you need to be able to answer the questions they have. So the world's bestseller is really what the Bible is. There's no other book that has sold as many copies as this book right here. So... Many people, though, Christian or not, know stories from the Bible. They know they've heard of the creation story. They may have heard of the Jonah and the whale story. They may have heard, um, you know, the walls of Jericho falling down. They may have heard Noah's Ark, right? But here's the thing. Most people base their understanding of the Bible not uh, on their own readings and their experience with it. They're basing it on what others have told them about it or what they've heard. And even fewer, fewer people know or understand the story of the Bible. You see, the way we received our Bibles, when you were handed a Bible, um, maybe as a child, how many of you were given a a Bible as a child? Almost everyone in this room, which is fascinating to me. When you're handed this book, you may have been told this. This is God's word. It's all true. Do what it says. You say, okay, great, all right, mom and dad, that sounds awesome. But then as you get older, right, and you start to read it for yourself and you find the things that were in the kids' version of the Bible, you begin to doubt. You begin to ask some tough questions. You begin to wonder what all of this means. (laughs) How does this align? How is this unified? The reality is many people don't know the story of how we got the Bible. And so If we don't take the time to know the story of the Bible, we can very easily begin to disbelieve scripture altogether. Andy Stanley, who's a pastor in Atlanta, said, if you don't know the story of the Bible, it's easy to discount the stories in the Bible. Back in February, some of you might recall that Jared touched on this topic a little bit. I'd encourage you, if you want some more and maybe a little bit of different points, you can um, go back and listen to the podcast. But he did say one thing that stuck out to me I wanted to reiterate. He said, to accept the scripture as the inspired word of God is a step of faith, but it is not a leap. And honestly, I really couldn't agree more. What we're going to discover today is that there are plenty, plenty, plenty of great and truthful, wonderful reasons to believe the Bible. But ultimately, just like everything in our lives, everything, not just in our Christian world, everything requires a little step of faith. So we're gonna answer four questions today, all found on your outline. The first one is, what is the Bible? The second is, how did we get the Bible? 
Third, how do I know I can believe the Bible, which is where we'll spend most of our time, and why does it all matter? So let's start with the first question. What is the Bible? So a little brief overview of the kind of specs here. Uh, I'm defining the Bible this morning as the sacred book of Christianity. Here's why I like that definition. The word sacred. If we took out that word, you could put holy if you want, but if you take out that word completely, it's just the book of Christianity. All of a sudden, it's basically saying it's human and uh, it's not anything that's um, God-ordained or inspired. It's just written by humans. It's a historical novel. That's what this would be if we took out the word sacred. So that word is extremely important. Second Timothy chapter 3, verse 15, which is at the very top of your outline, says, All scripture is breathed out by God and profitable. All scripture. Not some of it, not the parts that you like, all of it. So why? Why is it sacred? Well, because it was inspired by God himself. It's important to highlight that. It's special, it's above any other. But the second part of the definition that is important is of Christianity, the sacred book of Christianity. Why? Well, you see, guys, we're not unique or special in having a book that we follow. Every religion, almost, has some sort of text that they say is the truth. So the question is, what's so special about ours? See, Buddhists have the sutra, Islam has the Quran, Mormons have the Book of Mormon, and so, so many others. So let's find out this morning why we say this is the one and only one. So the specs, it contains 66 books. If you open up this book, you'll notice very quickly that uh, it's divided into two sections, the Old Testament and the New Testament. The Old Testament is much larger. It has 39 books, and the New Testament has 27 The Old Testament was written mostly in Hebrew, which was the language of the Jewish people at the time. The New Testament was written mostly in Greek, which was the common language of that time. Now, the Bible has 40 different authors, and it was written over 1,600 years, and that is extremely unique, and I can't wait to talk with you more about that in a little bit. The other thing that's kind of fun for people to know, um, because I recognize when people say, okay, yeah, I believe in God and I believe the Bible. What now? They, rec- they start to realize that there's a jillion different translations of one Bible and they get very confused. So there are 450, over 450 English translations of the Bible. So I just wanna give a brief little sidebar here. Don't be scared. The reason there are so many different versions is because there are different ways to say the same thing. (laughs) And people, as we all know, even in the United States, right, from the Pacific Northwest to the South to the Northeasterners have different ways of communicating, right, different slang or terms that we use. And this is allowing, the more translations there are, is allowing more accessibility to common people, to people who don't have doctorates and PhDs in uh, history and in, the, and in the Bible and linguistics. So, so that's why there's so many different ones. Be happy to talk to any of you more about that later as for if you're looking for a Bible that works well for you. Um, but I just wanted to, to touch on that. Um, last year, Kyle and I got to visit the Museum of the Bible, which is a fairly new museum in Washington, D.C. It was absolutely incredible, and it made me laugh because uh, we got to hang out with white Jesus. Uh, We have a great photo of us with the white Jesus, and I thought, oh, this is so historically accurate. I'm so glad it's in the Museum of the Bible, (laughs) but it was beautiful, stained glass. And what I just want to highlight about that opportunity is that um, 
We have some incredible resources just in this country for studying the Bible and for understanding uh, why we believe what we believe. And I encourage you to take advantage of it because there are a lot of countries who don't have that opportunity and don't, it's, it's a real privilege. And so we got to be able to go and we got to see and read artifacts and texts um, to confirm and validate why, what we've given our lives to. And it was powerful. It's 43,000 square feet. I mean, you could, it was just incredible to see all that evidence gathered and the historical context and culture in one location. So the second question we're going to answer this morning is this, how did we get the Bible? Now, I'm going to kind of try to start from the beginning uh, just to help us out here. Many people who pick up this book think that it's in chronological order. It's not. However, it is handy that the first book that you go to in the Bible in the Old Testament is believed to be the first written book, and it's the book of Genesis, which was written over 3,500 years ago. Now, that book and the four books following it were written by a man named Moses, and it was written in Hebrew. It's important to know that when Moses is writing writing down these stories, these events, this history, it didn't happen necessarily when Moses was there. He, he's not saying I was there when Adam and Eve were created. These stories, this history has been passed down through oral tradition from generation to generation. And then Moses, as we know, was raised by Egyptians and Egyptians were the one who really began to write and really began to um, record things. So that's when Moses comes into play, writing those down. And after Moses, the rest of the Old Testament was compiled over a span of 1,000 years by various writers. And what made it into the Old Testament, which was referred to as the Hebrew Bible by the Jewish people because they didn't have a New Testament, was based on what was believed to show God at work in and through the nation of Israel. Now, after the Old Testament is written, there's a 500-year break of silence, of nothingness of it written, and then we start the New Testament. And the New Testament was written way faster, so instead of 1,000 years for the Old Testament, we're talking 50 years for the New Testament. And I would argue that this is really when the Bible got its start, because if you just look at the Old Testament, that would be what, if you talk to a Jewish person today, that's what they believe in. They do not believe in the New Testament. It's only the Old Testament, the Hebrew Bible. So the Bible that we're talking about today really didn't come into play until Jesus came on the scene. Because once Jesus was resurrected on Easter morning, everything changed. And everyone wanted to know about this man. They wanted to know where he came from. They wanted to know his stories, his claims about being the Lord. And that's when the New Testament begins to take flight. And you've got Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the four gospels that are recording the history of this man. And the rest of the New Testament is largely made up by a man named Paul. We just finished studying one of his uh, books, Colossians. He was writing letters to groups of believers um, explaining uh, life and more about Jesus. So that's what I would argue is when the Bible that we know, the Christian Bible, really gets a start, is when Jesus shows up on the scene. Um, when non-Jewish people, the Gentiles, became enamored with Jesus, they became enamored with the text that told of his coming, which was the Hebrew Bible. And we're going to talk more about prophecies this morning. But that was really intriguing to people. See, the early church got interested in the book, not because they were interested in Judaism, but because they were interested in the backstory of Jesus, but they didn't embrace it as Jewish scripture. They embraced it as their own. And by the beginning of the second century, the Hebrew Bible was being used in Christian worship. And that's when it was given the new name, the Old Testament, instead of the Hebrew Bible. And not surprising, that was slightly offensive to the Jewish community, uh, because now it's no longer Jewish, it's Christian. <laughs> So Jesus 
begins to be documented not just by Luke, but by Matthew, Mark, and John. And of course, after he sends into heaven, we find the rest of the New Testament. How many of you have heard of the term the canon? The canon, not like a cannonball, not Miley Cyrus, just the canon. Okay, awesome. So the canon, this is how I'm defining it. The books of the Bible officially accepted as holy scripture. The canon is the books of the Bible that have been officially accepted as holy scripture. And in the second and third centuries, Christian leaders really struggled. They really wrestled to determine which of the many religious writings were actually God's inspired word for us. And through their several decade prayerful, searching work, they settled on the collection of books that we have in our Bibles. If I just ended there, I think you would probably um, feel a little frustrated. I think you would feel like, well, okay, so a bunch of men who were pretty much all the same got in a room and decided, well, we're going to pray about it, and this seems like a good one to put in the Bible. That's not encouraging. (laughs) It's not helpful. So let me give you a little bit more detail and understanding as to what method they use to determine what is going to be in Scripture. And I think it's going to make you feel a lot better and breathe a sigh of relief in that. They had a threefold method or test, and this is on your outline. The first is apostolic authorship. Now, apostolic means people who knew and followed Christ. So the question was, was the author of this text an apostle? Was it someone who knew and followed Jesus? Or did they have the endorsement of one? If not, it's not going in the canon. Secondly, apostolic content. Does the content agree with what the apostles taught orally or wrote when they were still alive? If it does not, it's not going in the canon. And third, acceptance by churches. Was this book widely circulated? So was there a lot of people that were speaking into it, that were reading it, that were agreeing and saying, yeah, that happened. I was there, my aunt was there, my uncle was there, my cousin was there, whatever. Was the book widely circulated, received, and quoted as accurate by the bodies of churches of that day? So you have tons of people speaking in and saying, no, yeah, that really happened, or that's total trash, no. (laughs) And so if any of those three, the apostolic authorship, the apostolic content, or acceptance by churches did not happen. It did not make it in the canon. This is another reason why the Bible, I think, shows again that it is true, is that it was, it was and is an extremely public process. Unlike a lot of our friends that believe in some other things where they say, oh yeah, so-and-so got it and brought it down from the mountain and this one person said it's true. There was no one else that spoke into that. There was no one else that could confirm any of the things that were found. There's a group, there's a body of believers and accountability and acceptance. So that's how the canon was determined. So let's go to the next question, which is the title of the message, how do I know I can believe the Bible? First, it's historically precise. So all of the documents that were found in our Bible had to pass a threefold examination before they are determined, quote, historically accurate. So we just talked about the threefold method or test just to determine uh, if they can go in the canon. There's a whole nother test just to determine if they're historically accurate. So you can see the layers to this process. It's a very detailed process. And if it fails any of the tests for historical accuracy, it's not considered authentic. So the first test to determine if the document is historically precise is this. It's called the bibliographic test. It's on your outline. Simply put, this test looks at the quantity, the quality, and the time span of the ancient manuscripts. 
It asks whether the text of the Bible we have today is reliable and if it is the same as the original. The simple answer, the great answer is yes. (laughs) There are thousands upon thousands of ancient manuscripts of the Bible dating all the way back to early second century. And in terms of quantity, the quantity of New Testament manuscripts is unparalleled in ancient literature. There are over 5,000 Greek manuscripts and 8,000 Latin manuscripts. And in contrast, just to give you an idea, because, oh, that's a lot. That's thousands and thousands. Well, what about other ancient literature? How much do they have? Well, many of you have heard of some of the the famous people like um, Plato, Aristotle, Caesar. The number of manuscripts that have been found for their works is between 1 and 20. And people have no problem quoting them all day long (laughs) and what they said and what they believed. And we have thousands upon thousands upon thousands. In terms of the Old Testament, how many of you have heard of something called the Dead Sea Scrolls? Awesome. Okay, Uh, for those of you who have not heard, don't worry. I'm going to tell you a brief little bit about it. It's an amazing discovery back in 1947. And I consider this a major win for uh, the Christian community because these scrolls um, were found by a young shepherd who had lost his goat and he's literally up in some caves and he stumbles upon these huge clay jars. And inside of these clay jars, he just thinks there's some documents and he literally tries to go pawn them off and get money for them. And all of a sudden they go, you know, whoa, 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 these are crazy stinking old. And so you can read all about how, you know, the government gets involved and it gets kind of messy, but they find out that these are the oldest known surviving manuscripts of the Hebrew scriptures. So we now have the oldest copy ever of the Old Testament is found in these Dead Sea Scrolls. It was so cool. Kyle and I, in high school, we got to make a trip. We lived in Yakima, so we took a trip over the mountain with our our class um, to go see the Dead Sea Scrolls in person um, because they were touring around the the whole world in some of the bigger museums. So we got to see them ourselves. It was amazing. Um, I think we have a picture. Oh, perfect. Yeah, so you can see... That's a photo of one of, the, one of the scrolls up close and personal. I don't know if you can really tell from where you're sitting, but notice there's no punctuation. Uh, the original Bible, uh, the original text did not have punctuation. It didn't have it divided into these nice, beautiful ways that we have it now. But what is so incredible about looking at the original manuscripts is this. Some people go, well, how do we know that they didn't just write in their own sweet little sentence or their own view? Or how do we know it was really copied every single letter down, you know, down, to, the, down to the minutest detail? And the way that we know that is there is tons of um, historical referencing to the process that scribes would have to go through to copy a manuscript. They literally had several people over their back as they're writing. And if there was anything that didn't match this original, they would have to throw the entire thing out. So the process was arduous. It was exact. It was precise. We can know that the manuscripts that we're reading now are almost, if not identical, to the original manuscripts. Um, the next thing we know is the internal test for if something's historically precise. It, this examines the linguistic, the cultural, and literary context uh, for contradictions and for coherence. So really, uh, the question is, do the texts make sense, and do they align? So for instance, the question would be applied to the Gospels. Do the stories that we're hearing in Matthew align with the stories that we're hearing in Luke? 
if they're, now they may have a few different stories, but are they, if they're not contradicting one another. And we were able to discover, obviously, it's hopefully you've been able to see the internal test. Oh, yeah, yeah, they make sense. They align. They, they, they show a very similar journey and path of Jesus and even repeat several of the miracles. And then the last thing is the external test. What external evidence, what outside of the Bible itself proves its realities? Many of you may have heard of a man named Josephus. You know you're a true Bible nerd when you have a copy of Josephus in your home. And Josephus is a Jewish historian who lived from AD 37 to 100. And this man wrote several works uh, uh, chronically in the history of the Jews. And in his works, he confirms multiple, multiple things that scripture claims. The biggest, of course, being the story of Jesus dying and coming back to life. But in addition to Josephus, there are nine other known non-Christian authors who talk about Jesus within 150 years of his life. Finally, of course, for the external test is archaeologists have discovered lots of places and items confirming several references and stories in scripture. I have a huge list. I think I gave you more of them on your document because you can go do some of your own research. I'm just going to refer to one right now. It's called, uh, it's in John chapter five. And John chapter five, verse one through two, it speaks of this pool in Jerusalem. Um, it says it's by the sheep gate and it's called in Hebrew, Bethsaida. Many of you have probably heard of that. And it says Bethsaida has five porticos. Well, until the 20th century, there was absolutely no evidence that this place existed. And critics began to question John's reliability. Well, in the 1930s, that pool was uncovered by archaeologists, complete with the four colonnades around the edges and one across the middle, the five porticos. And that was just in the 1930s. And there are so many example friends that I could go on and on and on about that archaeologists have discovered hundreds, thousands of years later to confirm what was written in scripture. It's pretty awesome. (laughs) The second thing is it's scientifically accurate. This is how we know we can believe the Bible is true. It's scientifically accurate. Uh, The Bible was not given to be a scientific document, but it never gives bad science. It never gives bad science. It's not a medical book, but it never says anything untrue. Why? Because God can't lie. It's impossible for God to be wrong. He knows all and is in control of all. I love the quote that says, science is simply thinking God's thoughts after him. Because honestly, that's what we're doing. Science is revealing what's already been set in place and made possible by the creator. Psalm 148.5 says, he issues his command and they came into being. His orders will never be revoked. So God established the laws of biology and we discover them. He established the laws of mathematics, and we discover them. He established the law of gravity, and we experience it, right? He establishes the law of the universe, and we discover it. See, truth never changes. But have you noticed that science often does? It's interesting, um, you know how it is today, something you thought we were told by science was good for us in the 1960s now causes us cancer. The things that, my, that I was allowed to eat or wasn't allowed to eat in my pregnancy, my mom ate tons of and said, oh, it was fine. Everyone said it was no problem. You turned out great, right? So 
Did you know, like, things are constantly changing in science. Did you know that the, the Louvre in France has a, a, a section that's three and a half miles long of obsolete science books? Obsolete. We don't read them anymore. We don't call them fact. They're wrong. See, we know that the scripture is true even by what's not in it. If it were a human book, would you not expect it to be filled with the scientific beliefs of the day? For example, everyone, everyone back then believed that the world is flat. It's 100% true without a fact the world is flat. And yet Isaiah chapter 40 verse 22, he says, God is enthroned above the sphere of the earth. How did Isaiah know that? Another example, for for years there was a strong belief that there was 1,022 stars in the universe and a man named, named Hipparchus who was referred to as the greatest ancient astronomer that ever lived said that's how many there are. There's 1,022. I don't remember how he came to that conclusion, but that's what he said. and Everyone believed him. But in Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 22, he says the number of stars are infinite. We now know that is true, right? There is more stars than there are grains of sand. How did Jeremiah know that if this is just a human book? Another one, uh, for centuries, people didn't believe in germs, right? They didn't believe in this invisible bacteria. That was not not something that they were concerned about back um, in the Old Testament days, even New Testament days. And yet God gives very clear instructions to people to go wash up, to quarantine themselves. And yet science didn't believe that was true. How? How does that come to be if this is purely written by humans? What about miracles? You'll hear a lot of people who say, well, it's not scientifically accurate because we see these miracles that happen, and that's just not scientifically possible. Um, It's really interesting to me because most people believe in a God, even in this post-Christian America. Most people believe in a God, and most people believe that God was somehow involved in the creation of the world, somehow. And most people would say that God is bigger than the world itself, right? That's what makes him God. He's not human. He's bigger than So why are we skeptical? Why are they skeptical about supernatural events? If God created the world, doesn't it make sense that he'd be interested in what goes on in it and that he'd be bigger and more powerful than all of the world? Wouldn't people be baffled and dazzled by what the human form of God could do amongst us? See, miracles can happen. You just can't, you can't disqualify them. You don't have to abandon science to believe in miracles. You do not. And I have spoke with many, you know, I'm sure all of you have many medical professionals, many friends and family who've had things happen that don't make sense. This person should not have been able to be healed from stage four or five cancer. There's just no way. The medicine could not have done that. (laughs) Scientifically, that's impossible. You know, fill in the blank for a certain experience. So what do you call that? Luck? I'd call it a miracle. <laughs> There's no other explanation for it. The third reason we know the Bible is true, the way, why we can believe it is it fulfills prophecy. Prophecy is a prediction of future events. There's detailed predictions about people, nations, and events that were foretold centuries before they occurred, and their fulfillments have been historically verified. There are over 300 prophecies in the Bible predicting the events 
of the life and the person of Jesus, and all of them came true. Over 300 prophecies just about Jesus, and all of them came true. And we don't have time to unpack those today. It was super cool, though. One of our guys on our, um, on our team, a media team earlier this morning was like, that's how I ended up like, coming to believe the Bible was I studied the prophecies, and I just couldn't deny it anymore. <laughs> and he's an incredibly brilliant uh, scientific man. Um, but these prophecies are, are really powerful. We don't um, have time to unpack them, but one that I can just refer to is Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14. The book of Isaiah is an extremely prophetic book found in the Old Testament. And in it, you will know this verse, therefore the Lord will give you a sign. He says, behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Friends, that verse was written 700 years before Jesus was born. 2 Peter 1, verse 21 says, No prophecy ever originated from humans. Instead, it was given by the Holy Spirit. Matthew 26, verse 56, Jesus says, All of this is happening. Everything that is happening is to fulfill the words of the prophets as recorded. So Jesus is confirming that what was said in the past is coming to fruition. The fourth reason we can believe the Bible is that it's thematically unified. It's the same theme from cover to cover, from beginning to end. And that theme is redemption. The theme in every single book is redemption. The Old Testament, uh, I would say this, the Old Testament is the history of God preparing the world for a savior. If you want to know what the Old Testament is, be able to tell someone in one sense, it's the history of God preparing the world for a savior, showing us how badly and desperately we need him. The second part of the Bible, the New Testament, I define as the story of the savior, the savior that we need so desperately, him coming, and his church That's the story of the Savior and his church. And the Bible is about God's love for all of humanity and creation and redeeming it all, all the brokenness, and bringing it back to himself. And I want you to think about how crazy this is. Remember earlier how I said 1,600 years, 40 authors? This was written on three different continents in three different languages. And I can guarantee you that these people didn't know about each other. Okay, 1,600 years, 40 different people, they didn't all know each other, and yet they had the exact same theme resounding in each and every book. Doctors and lawyers and prisoners and kings and prophets and fishermen and tax collectors, all saying, it's about Jesus. It's about redemption. Luke 24, verse 27, beginning with Moses, so the first five books of the Bible and all the prophets, the rest of the Old Testament, Jesus explained to them what was said in all of the scriptures concerning himself. Jesus says, you can't throw out the Old Testament. It's all about me. He's very selfish. (laughs) John chapter six, verse 39, you search the scriptures because you believe that they give you eternal life, but the scriptures point to me. And I wanna pause there, friends, and say, I do not believe, we do not believe that the Bible is part of the Trinity, okay? It's Father, Son, Holy Spirit. There's no fourth member of the Trinity. This is, the Bible is, we're not worshiping the Bible, okay? It says very clearly in John, you believe that the scriptures give you eternal eternal life, but that's not it. The scriptures are a tool. They point to me. 
The fifth and final reason that we can know that we can believe the Bible is that it's affirmed by Jesus. So if you are here this morning and you say, I follow Jesus, I trust Jesus, then you have to follow and trust the Bible. They, are, they cannot be separated. And this is really interesting to me because I feel like that, um, that theology is creeping in to our churches and into our lives where we say, and I, a lot of my peers, I'm having conversations, I'm overhearing, I'm seeing, people say, I, you know, I love Jesus, but not the church. Well, or I love Jesus, but not the Bible. Or I follow Jesus, but I don't have to follow the Bible. That's just wrong. Straight up bad theology, wrong. Because we see Jesus talking about how important the scriptures are and him quoting them himself and saying, I'm living by them. So if I trust Jesus, then I have to trust the Bible. It's so funny to me how many people will say, yeah, I trust Jesus, and then they kind of turn their nose up or raise their eyebrow at the very things that he talks about, that he's referring to in scripture. Um, I think it's so interesting too, because we can go back to the conversation about miracles, right? So at a baseline, if you say miracles are not true, then obviously Jesus didn't rise from the dead, and then I don't know what we're all trusting Jesus for, (laughs) And more than that, we often end up, whether or not we mean to, holding a very different view of scripture than even Jesus held. And I would put forth to you that that's super dangerous. And Jesus quoted constantly from the Old Testament, and not once did he ever tell us to doubt. Not once did he ever tell us doubt the scripture. I think this is a really good transition into our final question for the morning, which is, well, why does it matter? I want to suggest that all of this will only matter to you if you want any of the three following things. And they're not on your outline because I got inspired late last night, okay? So the first is, if you want to know where you're going, this is on your outline. Our salvation depends on the Bible being truthful. Because friends, if it's not truthful, we are in really big trouble and we should all pack up and go home. Because salvation is very clearly laid out in scripture. It's talking about the life after death, our life later. This is very practical. Our life after this is guaranteed by scripture. If we say, yes, Jesus, I'm following you. I believe what you say is true. We know where we're going when you take your last breath. There's a place waiting for us. The second reason we know it matters is if you wanna know God. If you wanna know God, you have to know the Bible. 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 18 says, but grow in the grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. Grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior. And if you want to know God, yes, you can absolutely, there's many ways to know God and to experience him. But you have to have something to measure those experiences up by. Otherwise, we're living our life based on what we feel, which as we all know, just looking at history is very scary, very dangerous. Which leads us to the third point. It matters if you want to know how to live. The way we should live is laid out in the Bible. That's on your, on your outline. The way we should live is laid out in the Bible. Right now, kingdom come will be done on earth as it is in heaven. If we want to know how to live, we're given very clear guidance and instructions on how we should be conducting ourselves. And it's not meant to be this legalistic rule book that we're beating each other over the head with. What it is meant to be is the ability to ask ourselves some tough questions and to process, is this just about what's best for me or is this about what's best for others? 
Is this what is, what is pleasing to God or is it just easier for myself? Because remember, it's all about redemption. It's all about getting closer to Jesus. It's all about experiencing the best life that God has for us. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 16 through 17. We started with that scripture. I'd love to end with it this morning because it says, if you want to know how to live, it says all scripture is God-breathed and is useful for teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness so that the servant of God may be thoroughly equipped for every good work. The Bible is the number one source for telling Christians how to live. And I want to close this morning with a quote that is on your outline that frankly just smacked me upside the head this past week. It's by a man named Augustine, and he said, if you believe what you like in the gospel and reject what you don't like, it's not the gospel you believe, but yourself. I have a lot that I would love to say about that, but I think that would be a whole other message. But what I want to close with this morning is this. The Bible is true, and it is transformational. When we say yes to a relationship with God, we are given the opportunity to either believe his word, the Bible, or not. To either accept it or to reject it. But Augustine said it so well, if you believe what you want out of this book, you're believing in yourself. You're not believing in the Bible. You're not believing in God. And that is a very, very dangerous place to be. I hope, I hope this morning that wherever you find yourself on the topic of scripture, whether you're a skeptic or you're a daily reader and ingester of it, that you find yourself taking a step, not necessarily a leap, but a step closer to Jesus and believing that what he has revealed in scripture is true and that it's worth laying your life down for. Let's pray together. Lord, you are so good that you know that we are broken and we are skeptical people. We are people who need and want and desire resources and validity and evidence. And God, you have been so gracious to give it to us in abundance. Lord, thank you that you know when we're struggling. You know when we're doubting. You know when we're questioning. And you just find ways to draw us closer. Lord, I I pray this morning for anyone who has come here and has been struggling, has been wrestling with this book, the implications it has for how to live. God, I pray that you would give all of us courage, that you would give all of us the confidence to know this book, not just to know the stories in it, but the stories of it, so that we can go out and we can share the news and we can know that you are real and you are true and you cannot produce anything apart from that truthfulness. I wanna give an opportunity this morning. If you are here and you have been just kind of wrestling, just struggling with the scripture, you've heard a lot of things. You've tried to maybe even figure it out on your own and you are finally, today's the day and you're saying, man, I believe the Bible. I, this, yes, this is what I needed to know 
that God is real, that God is true, that this isn't just some man-made human book. And I want to follow the God of the Bible. With every, every eye closed, would you just raise your hand and just make eye contact with me so we can see, we can, yeah, that's awesome. That's so good. Anyone else? I just want to pray. We want to encourage you. We won't call you out just saying, man, okay, yeah, I believe the Bible. I believe God. I'm going to go for it. Yeah, awesome. So cool. Four hands. That's amazing. Thank you, Jesus. Okay, I want to pray with our friends. God, we just thank you that you have spoken, that you have revealed the places in hearts that have been hiding, <laughs> that maybe have been doubting. And God, I thank you um, that these these people were with us this morning to really receive from you. God, this is your word. This is your truth. It's not mine. It's not ours. It's yours. We partner with you this morning. We say yes to you, Jesus. We say yes to your word and your scripture. We say yes to your life. And we choose to follow you. Lord, reveal yourself to us. Reveal more. And may we walk in the ways of salvation and of truth and of righteousness and goodness for all the days of our lives. In Jesus' name, amen.